Good morning, church. It's good to see you. I am uh, looking forward to this text of scripture. And before we get into it, I'd like to ask that uh, we just take a moment and humble ourselves before God's word and just pray and seek his presence and seek his help. Um, I always feel so acutely aware of that every time that I preach. And we don't want to just transfer information. So the reason why I tend to pray before I preach is this is not information transfer time. This is time where we're asking the Spirit of God to come down and actually to affect our hearts, to change our affections, to do a a supernatural work in our hearts so that we actually fundamentally become different people. And that's what we believe preaching is for. It's not just uh, to learn. It's so that we change and become more like Jesus Christ. So let's ask for that this morning. Father, we we come before your word this morning, and my desire is that this psalm would swallow us up, that we would learn how to find hope in the midst of turmoil and fear and depression and despair and anxiety. And I pray that you would grant that we would know how to think and how to feel with you in this psalm, Lord. We want our lives at the end of the day to be one beautiful, loving alleluia to you. We just want to be praised to you, O God. And so would you open the preached word to our hearts and would you stretch this hour uh, into the whole of our lives and make this a very, very precious sermon in the life of your people, especially those who this morning are feeling acute levels of anxiety and fear and worry that you administer your word powerfully to us in Jesus name. Amen. You know, it's hard to imagine when you think about some of the great figures of church history, it's hard to imagine um, great men of God like this seemingly omnicompetent, eloquent, brilliant, full of energy, Charles Spurgeon weeping like a baby. But he did. In fact, in 19 in 18, uh, excuse me, 1858, at the age of 24, it happened for the first time in his life. Spurgeon chronicles that account and he says the following. He says, my spirits had sunk so low that I could weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. Causeless depression cannot be reasoned with. Nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet sounds. We would do better to fight with the wind as with his shapeless, indefinable, yet all beclouding hopelessness. The iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in a gloomy prison requires a heavenly hand to push it back. Well, for some of you, those words this morning will ring close to home. You feel this way not once in a while. Some of you feel this way as the normal, as the typical daily expression of your existence. And so what you end up doing is you kind of live life with sort of a low-grade feeling of despair, helplessness, and anguish, and dejection, and desperation. These are the things that tend to characterize many of your days, maybe even for some of you most of your days. It's dark. And for all of us, we've all felt some of those emotions, at least at one time or another, even if you're very sanguine, you're a very happy person. At the end of the day, all of us have felt some of these emotions. 
And of course, we can experience these emotions for different reasons. I mean, some people live with them and they don't know why. They wake up and they can't figure out why is everything so dark. Other people can tie it to a pattern of sin and addiction that leads to desperation. And for others in here, you may not feel hopeless this morning, but you suffer from the paralysis of of fear, of worry, of anxiety. One of Stanford's famed psychiatrist, Irving Yalom, once said this. He said, there is everywhere, everywhere anxiety and fear. So it's not like anybody gets to escape that. Now, you don't have to be a Stanford emeritus professor of psychiatry to come to that conclusion. Life teaches us that. It's it's obvious. Experience teaches us that. Fear involves the future. We're afraid of the unknown. You know, something is up ahead, and I don't want it. I don't know what it is, but I don't want it. Will I get that call in the middle of the night? Is that thing that I dread the most about to happen? Perhaps it's the fear of losing material things. Maybe it's a job. You're living paycheck to paycheck. Will I be able to keep my house? Will I have enough money? Others fear things like emotional pain or relational pain. Will my spouse be faithful to me? Will my kids walk with Jesus or will they end up forsaking the God of their parents? Well, maybe it's not depression or fear that you struggle with. Perhaps it's anger or envy or worry or loneliness. Or for some of us, maybe it's just a general lethargy. Like, life is just boring. Life is just kind of, you're just doing stuff, and there's nothing really proactive about your life. There's not a real vision out there. There's not something inspiring you every day. And life is just kind of mundane and ordinary and plain. And for all of us, we have different struggles. And while the cause for these problem emotions is going to end up varying from person to person, the place that we turn to for help is the same. You see, there comes a time when all of us must realize that we simply need help. Perhaps they really do exist. You know this, these macho men who never shed a tear, never have a fearful moment in the night. You know, but I for one, I for one tend to think that that is, that such an image has more to do with fantasy than reality. I mean, you know, the myth of the unconquerable hero with a spine of steel who pulls himself up by his own bootstraps while he faces the adversity of life, never shedding a tear and always an iron man in everything that he does. Rambo, if you will. It's a myth. This guy does not exist. There's a reason why he's depicted in a movie. The truth is, we all struggle with hurt and brokenness and fear. And when we do, the question is, where do we go for help? Maybe you remember the words of Benjamin Franklin, who once said that God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, that was Benjamin Franklin. And that phrase ended up being popular among evangelicals, and it did not serve us well. In fact, I would suggest that the very idea of asking for help is something that our spirit and our flesh cringes about. Like, it sounds like if we have to ask for help, we're desperate. You know, like we're weak or something. And so, you see, we all know that we need help, but the problem is we don't want to ask for it. And we certainly don't want to expose that weakness to others. And that's why I think self-help books are so popular. 
Like we like them because we we can get, we can get the self help book without having to expose our weakness to others, and and we can just help ourselves. We like self help because fundamentally it panders to our pride. It reinforces the idea that actually I am the only helper that I need. And and we're like this from birth. I mean, think about it. Before a child can even say the words, I'll do it, they're ripping the spoon from their mother's hand so they can sort of messily feed themselves. It's not that they wanted to be helpful to mom. It's that they just have this innate sense, even as babies, that I don't want to be helped. I can help myself, thank you. And yet, in those more honest moments of our children... They also recognize their need for help because that same child who rips the spoon out of his mother's hand will five minutes later fall down and cry and lift their arms saying, please hold me. So we know that there's this internal inconsistency within us. And what we actually need is an acknowledgement that, look, let's not pretend or have any pretenses that we're really strong in and of ourselves. But let's just admit we're we're really busted up, broken and needy people that need help. And so we know of our need for God's help. In fact, any claim that we are fully able to help ourselves, think about this, is actually an echo of the first sin, the first temptation in the garden. To think of ourselves as God, to say that I don't need help, Adam and Eve, to say that I am capable, that I am the one who who has the resources for life. I can handle this life on my own. And that's just really close to saying, I am the all-competent one. I'm God. I mean, we're that close in our assessment. So where do you turn for help? Or maybe another question is, where should you turn for help? Well, Psalm 121 helps us with that question. It's, It's a psalm that calls us to look away from ourselves, to look to the one who made us, to see that he is the one that we need for help. Now, One of the reasons why I'm preaching this psalm is because I just sensing the weight, the heaviness that our church has walked through in the last couple of years. The trials, the difficulties, the loss of loved ones and friends, the 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 the, the, just walk through that with the Emory's, the situation with Titus. There's just heaviness. And so I, I, I sense as a pastor, let's go somewhere in God's word to find comfort. Where do we find Hope. And Psalm 121 is, is a great place for us to, to meditate this morning. It's a psalm of ascents, which means that it was sung by God's people on their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate the great acts of Yahweh on their behalf. And as they approached Jerusalem, what they actually did was they took this psalm and they sang it together. They would have had it memorized and one person in the group would have sung or a a one half of the choir, if you will, would have sung. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then the other half, the other folks would respond with he will not let your foot be moved. And they would sing it back and forth to one another, almost as if they were preaching a song to one another. Another way that we can read this psalm is to speak it to ourselves, is to preach it to ourselves. We can say something like this. Uh, Jonathan, where does my help come from? Answer, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we ask ourselves the question and we work through the text. Well, whether we sing it to others, which we can do and should do as a church, or whether we turn it into a soliloquy and speak it to ourselves, the point stands, where do we find 
help. And ultimately, this psalm teaches us about hope. Where when we're discouraged and tired and broken and lost and sick and afraid, what do we do? And I have two points this morning. Number one, first, what does hope require? And secondly, that is, if we want to be filled with hope, what do we need to do? And then secondly, what does hope rest in? So what does it require and what does it rest in? So first, what does it require? How, how do we find hope? How do we become people of hope so that, I mean, just pull out any member in our church so that the banner that flies over your life, the testimony over your life is that is a man, that is a woman who hopes in God so that your friends and your colleagues look at you and they're just like, man, that person, that man, that woman, their life, they live it with such great confidence in God. It's incredible. So that you have this incredible testimony among even non-Christian friends that, man, what is the root of that guy's life? So much strength, so much hope, so much uh, courage as he faces life. How? How did he get there? And how do we stay there? Well, I see two ways in this text, verses 1 and 2. The first thing that hope requires is this. Look at verse 1. A lifted head. A lifted head. Verse 1, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? Now, you need to know that that phrase, I lift my eyes to the hills, is a bit enigmatic, but it's a metaphor. And and what does it mean? It means this, that Jerusalem was an elevation of about, it is an elevation of about two and a half thousand feet. And as you would approach the city on a pilgrimage, like they would have done, you would hike through the hills, and there'd be a lot of hard hiking a lot of hard exercise, and you'd be very strenuous. You'd be going up. A lot of hills there in Jerusalem. I know that because I visited Jerusalem this week on Google Earth. And I saw, you can see the topography, and it's very, very hilly. And and for the pilgrim walking towards Jerusalem, the mountains around the city would have represented Jerusalem itself. So even the mountains represented God's city. It was the place that God had chosen for his earthly dwelling. So lifting your eyes to the hills is a metaphor actually for lifting your eyes to God. This is the first thing that hope requires, a lifted head to God, a lifted countenance. Now, of course, that's the opposite of a downcast soul. So maybe you're thinking of uh, David in Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? See, why are you disquieted within me? And what does he say next? Hope in God. So David's preaching himself in Psalm 42. Now, of course, a downcast person is a person with a droopy head. His eyes are usually fixed on himself. He's looking at his own chest and his own burdens of his life and the problem at hand. You know, he's look at me and look how difficult my life is, the pain that I'm feeling, the sickness that I have, the sins that I've committed, the burden that's weighing me down, my family, my kids, my job, my money, my finances, my ever and it's just all this inward difficult turmoil. It's despair, it's despondency, it's defeat. And I, I, think a, I think a good illustration of this is today is the NFC-AFC championships, for those who like football. And there are four teams playing today. Two of them are going to lose. And after the game today, there are going to be two teams full of players who are going to hang their heads after the game. 
And you see that after a really intense game of football or something, a sport, guys walk off the field and they're not chipper and happy. Their head is down. They look defeated. They look discouraged. And that's what a downcast soul is like. They, it, it's dejection. But think about what a lifted head represents. The opposite is a lifted head, which represents hope and trust and confidence. In fact, there's just something about lifting your chin, lifting your head, that communicates inward hope. And that hope is able to thrive for the Christian in the midst of trouble, in the midst of great pain and difficulty. In fact, it's interesting to note that in order to lift your eyes, what do your, where do your eyes first have to be? Down. Because you're lifting them. And so that means that it's part of the grace and mercy of God that he allows all kinds of difficult things to happen to us so that our eyes go down in order that he can lift them up again and give us hope in him. So things happen and we feel like, oh man, this world, why can't there be any good news? Why is there so much pain and suffering? Why does this or that have to happen? And actually, it's the realization of those things that drives us to deep dependence on God so that the only thing we can do is turn to something that's actually going to help us, which is God's way of forcing us off the idols of this earth onto the thing that really matters, which is God. So if your head never goes down, if your eyes never look down, then you might just walk around just sort of chipper and happy. But it will be a superficial chipperness and a superficial happiness. And what happens is when you're really struggling, you have nowhere else to look but God and you start seeking him with intensified urgency again. And God brings us into those cycles intentionally to drive us into deeper communion and fellowship with him. And that, my friends, is a mercy. It's a mercy for us. So, biblical counselors will tell you, and even secular counselors, and they're right on this, will tell you that that this step in verse 1 of lifting one's head is the most important step to take. And you think about it. To actually acknowledge that there's something that I need help with and to look beyond my own personal resources to get it. To say, look, I, folks, I, guys... I really need help with this. To say that, that very idea that I can't help myself uh, is is so crucial. Because the other opposite is to say I can help myself. And that idea has caused the breakdown of more marriages, the disaster of more businesses and lives than maybe any other idea on the planet. Right. I can help myself. Oh, I can. I'll, I'll get my business out of this, this, this big mountain of debt that I'm under. I'll take care of it. I'll figure it out. I don't need any counseling. I don't need any professional help. Oh, my marriage will be fine. Oh, we're fine. You know, we don't need to go see a pastor. We don't need to see a biblical counselor. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and finally, bam, one of the spouses is gone because they're fed up. They're tired of it. They're and, and it's pride. I don't need help. I can figure this out on my own. And that is a curse to us. It's been said that, sort of cleverly, that pride is the first victim of failure. Which I think, you know, means that if you lose your sense of pride, as in you lost your sense of pride because you failed. But actually, I think a more accurate assessment would be pride is the first cause of failure. I mean, ultimately... If you fail, a good 
good reason for that is because you have tried to do it on your own. Try to go it on your own. And after all, pride comes before a fall. We can't do it on our own. We're sinful, we're weak, we're depraved, we're helpless. In fact, as Tim Keller is fond of saying, we have to acknowledge that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe before we can acknowledge that we are more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. And we have to come to that realization of our weakness first. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, the preacher's work is to throw sinners down into utter helplessness so that they may be compelled to look up to him who alone can help them. And that's part of preaching. It is helping people reorient their perspective around what their real need is in life. And this morning, what I want to do is this morning, I want to stir you. I want to compel you to look to him who alone can help you. Because unless you acknowledge his help in the gospel, everything you do will either be driven by pride or fear. Pride or fear. So contrary to Benjamin Franklin, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. And that is the gospel. A a friend of mine was, a friend of mine was diagnosed with a very rare and aggressive form of cancer. And uh, I got on her blog and I read what she wrote in response to the news when that broke. And this is what she said. She said that I, she said, quote, I drowned my pillow in tears. As I lay on my bed, my mother read scripture and covered me in prayer. But the Lord brought this hymn to my heart. Uh, Great is thy faithfulness, O God. O God, my father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not as thou hast been. Thou will forever be. Great is thy faithfulness. And then she says this. The Lord is faithful to complete the work he began in his children. Yes, even this tumor has not taken our Lord by surprise. This morning I woke to a new hope. Even in the midst of the unknown, the Lord is daily restoring to me the joy of his salvation. And granting in me a willing spirit to sustain me. Do we really treasure Christ above all else? Do we really long to be with Christ more than anything? Sometimes, she says, I wonder if I'm too comfortable on this earth. Have I forgotten where my home is? I pray that my desire above all else would be to bring him glory and honor on this earth as long as he shall have me here. My hope rests in the fact that the great physician is holding me in the very palm of his hands. Yes, sir, he is. I have not And will not lose hope. Well that was six years ago. And God healed her. And she's doing great. That's a lifted head. Praise God. What what does hope require? It requires a lifted head. but, But secondly. Hope requires. This is really important. Not just a lifted head. But a God who can really help us. I mean, what what good is it to lift your head to a God that can't help you or a person that can't help you? So the issue is here is who is this God? Can he really help us? Look at verse two. My help comes from the Lord. Who is this Lord? Whom the maker of heaven and earth. 
So you see what this psalm is saying is that when we really need help, we have to look to God. But unless that statement is shored up with some pretty rigorous theology about who that God is, it ends up becoming painfully trite. You know, like the person who says, oh, just trust God, you know. Tragedy strikes and somebody just just flippantly says to you, trust God. And you just feel in your heart like, man, like, is that your first thing to say to me is just flippantly like that? And they didn't mean it that way, but it just comes off like like a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage. Like, what use is that? Like a little gauze pad. Someone is hemorrhaging. But the psalmist is not being trite here. He's doing more than telling us, trust God. He's doing more than telling us, just lift your eyes. He's telling us who this God is. And that's because hope requires more than a lifted head. It requires a God who can actually help us. So who is this God? Well, verse 2 tells us he's the maker of heaven and earth. Does that sound like someone that can help you? The maker of heaven and earth? I think so. This is the God. This is the maker of everything. So the encouragement to trust God is not trite if the God that we are trusting is the maker of everything. That's not trite. We're talking about the God of the Bible, the maker of heaven and earth. That's where we turn not first to a self-help book, not first to a glass of whiskey or at all, not to a bottle of prescription medication to dull my pain habitually, but God, the rock-solid creator of heaven and earth, because, friends, he alone can help you. When life gets hard, where, where do you turn? Where, like, where have you been turning? So, like, where are you turning right now? Like, what's been your habit in the last month? Like, where did you turn this week? Last night, yesterday, when you were struggling, what did you turn to? Like, what did you do when no one else was around to try to find some release? What do you do to feel better? I mean, let's get practical. Is what happens, for example, if your marriage is relationally or physically unrewarding? Most of our ladies will say it tends to be emotionally unrewarding. Many of our men will tend to say it tends to be physically unrewarding. I think we know the reason for that. That's sin in both of us. But where do you turn when that happens? What do you do to cope with the pain? Where? What are your release valves? Illicit sex? How about 30 minutes or 40 minutes of pornographic lust in front of a computer? How about a romantic novel that's just really just, it's just really just raunchy? What about getting wrapped up in a completely inappropriate television series? Just basking in front of that. Soaking in front of that. What about living a fantasy life on the internet with a social media account that maybe no one else knows about? How about the refrigerator? Where do you turn... For release. I mean, this gets real, folks. This is real. So, because here's what, here's the thing. What you turn to is what you worship. The problem isn't first lust or loneliness or gluttony or sex. The problem is actually idolatry. The problem is actually misplaced worship. 
You're trying to find help in all the wrong places. So when you're sad, you sneak away and eat for comfort. But hear, hear me, the, the, the refrigerator is not the problem. The heart is the problem. There's a faith problem. Here's the point. If you worship God, then you won't turn to food when things get tough. If you worship God, then you won't turn to extramarital sex when things go tough or the marriage goes south. Instead, when we are to turn to God, and that's the great news here, because he's the maker of heaven and earth. And if you turn to him, he can actually help you. And not harm you. When you turn to an idol, it doesn't help you. It may temporarily make you feel a little bit better to eat some chocolate. But that's not going to help you. It may temporarily feel a little bit better to get a buzz. But that's not going to help you. What's going to help you is when... Actually, folks, it makes it worse. It creates bigger problems for you. And drives you down into deeper depression. Darker despair. But when you turn to God, like, here's the thing. He can actually help you. And we've seen what hope requires this morning then. We've seen a lifted head. And we've seen that a, a God who can really help us. But the psalm doesn't end there. It gets better. Because what we see in verses 3 through 8 is a further argument for why God can help us. So we're just expositing this text. We're walking through it verse by verse. And 3 through 8 is an argument for why God can really help us. Leading to our second point. What does our hope rest in? And you see, because one of the great lessons of this psalm is that god isn't just the god who created the heavens and the earth that's big and that's huge for us but he's the god who watches over his children with tender affection and care like as you know so many of our founding fathers were deists what's a deist right a deist often is characterized by the example of a divine watchmaker like a god who maybe wound up a watch and then just let it sort of tick on its own and never really touched it again. It's the God who sort of is up there, but not really involved with us down here. That's deism. And, and many of our founding fathers were deist. They, they were very erroneous in their understanding of God. We like to think our nation was this great, profound Christian nation. There was Christian virtue, and there was faithfulness there, and there was some truth there. There was also a lot of error these men were happy to affirm the truth that God created the world and sees his creation, but they stopped short, many of them, of the biblical picture, arguing that while God sees us from a distance and knows who we are, he's actually not fundamentally interested in us or involved with us. And of course, we know that's not true. The psalmist is not talking about a remote and distant God who simply flung the stars into space and then folded his arms saying, well, let's just see what happens. Let's just watch that sort of unfold. That's not the God of the Bible. No, the God of the Bible takes intimate, loving interest in his children, in his people, in his church, in you and in me. Those of us who are parents, you know what it's like when you first have a baby and they're in the crib. And you're, especially your first child, you're concerned like is something going to happen to them while they're sleeping. And so you stand over their crib and you watch them sleep. And you keep walking in there and you're like, are they breathing? You know, and there's concern. And that's, that's, that's like God's heart. And that's actually a quite a close and good example of what it's like to, to have that kind of watch care. You're sensitive to your children's needs. 
you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an expression of how much you love them. And the psalmist encourages us to come in closer and to experience the watch care of this gracious God. And then he says three things about this God and about his watch care. First, he says that his care is constant. Look at verses three and four. He's, he's, the, he's looking after us every minute of every day. What does the text say? Verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Isn't that good news? Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God's care is constant. That is, he's not sleeping in his care for you. It's not like he ever says, well, I'm going to take, you know, like a 30-minute nap here. I'm going to take an hour break because I'm kind of tired of caring for you. He never does that. He will not let your foot slip. It's like when you watch your kids play on the playground, you're just constantly seeing, where are they? Oh, don't don't climb on that. It's too high. It's too high. Come down or whatever. You're watching them and you want to help them across the ice because you know that they're just going to run out and they're going to hit that ice and bust their head open. So you grab their hand, you walk them across the ice, you look after them in the same way God is watching over us with far more precision, with far more care. Who is this God? Look at verse four. He's the God who keeps Israel. Like a whole nation, like his whole people. He's a God who's who's not only infinite in power, but infinite in his tender care and in his mercy. He's able to watch over you and pursue you, even when you're running from him and rebelling from him. He's pursuing you. He's coming after you in love. And the psalmist says this covenant keeping God never sleeps. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes. I mean. I I feel the need to say this. Sometimes it feels to me like God is sleeping. Sometimes it feels to me like God doesn't care. Like God isn't listening to me. Those are dark moments. Those are sad moments. Those are unfaithful moments. Those are unbelieving moments. But can anybody identify with me this morning? Right? I don't think I'm the only one that says... I struggle sometimes to wonder... Is God really there? Is he really listening to me? Right? So... So we're just being honest. It feels like God is sleeping. In fact, sometimes when you read the Psalms, you see occasions where David is in an open field and he's crying out to God. And and it's as if David were saying, God, look at me. Wake up to my situation. I mean, look at Psalm 42, verse 3. He says, he says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say continually to me, where's your God? David says that. My tears weeping out. Where are you, God? Where are you? I love this story. I, 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 I've told it to you before, but um, I, I'll, I'm sure it'll be new for a lot of you. I remember Paul Washer telling me a story one time. We were in Peru. We were doing a uh, – we were out in the Amazon jungle. And I asked Paul, did you ever have a time – have you – when's the time in your life where you felt like you, God wasn't there, distant, cold? And he was just talking about the, the realities of having a fight for faith in his life. And he was tell me he told me about a story of a time that he just did not feel or sense God in his life at all. Like for weeks and months. And he was trying to read the Bible, trying to pray, trying to pursue God, trying to seek him. And yet there was like this just coldness, this just nothing there. Just no, like, where's God? Like, is this thing even real? Like, what are we doing? Going to church and I just felt just nothing. So he told his wife, I'm, I'm desperate. I, I've got to find God. Where is he? So he said, I'm going hiking. He's an outdoorsman. Paul's just kind of this burly outdoor guy. And he said, 
I'm going, I'm going up to the mountains and I'm going to pursue God and I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray and I'm not coming back until, until I find God, until I sense Him again, until I feel Him again. Let me just make an application here. Look, if you're in a moment or season of coldness or dryness or lethargy, the best thing you can do is fast, pray, get on your knees and seek God until you find Him. In fact, I was just talking with our elders this week, and I, I'm sensing as a pastor that we be really good for our church to enter into a season of prayer and fasting for the good of our whole church, our pursuit of God, our, to start the new year outright. And we're, we're talking about that right now and maybe thinking about some ideas for how we can do that. But here's the thing I want to say. Paul, was, Paul went up there to the mountains, and he began to pray, and he said... That it was like day one, day two, day three, praying, God, where are you? What's going on? And actually, he got to a point of anger and frustration. And he bent down at a moment of weakness, and he grabbed a rock. And he got so angry, and he said, God, where are you? He threw this rock up to heaven. And he said, as soon as he threw that, the Spirit of God came over him with deep and profound conviction. With this voice, how dare you throw a rock at me? I have been nothing but kind to you my whole life. I have been nothing but faithful to you my whole life. How dare you throw a rock at me? And ironically, Paul said that was when he heard God's voice again. And it was the voice of a father disciplining him, saying to him, son, Son, don't you know who I am? Have you forgotten so quickly who I am and the God that I am for you? That I'm always here? That I'm always faithful? That I'll never leave you or forsake you? And, and he came down from the mountain. He said, honey, I found him. I found God in my rebellion. I threw a rock at him and he came. And he showed me what a wicked sinner I am. And he wept. He just wept before God. And David has these moments. Psalm 42, 3. Where is your God? We, that's just real. That's just what we struggle with. So, but the point here is in verse 4 is that this is the God who keeps Israel. He's a covenant keeping God who never sleeps. Even if we think he's sleeping. In fact, when you read the Psalms, you go on and you see David comes out of that. He realizes that God is his helper. But in Psalm 121, God speaks back to us here in this text. He says, do you really think that I'm asleep? Do you really think that I'm slumbering on the job? I never sleep. And friends, we can praise God for that this morning. This is good news for us. God never sleeps. And here's the great thing. God never sleeps so that you can. Like the reason why you can go to sleep at night with peace is because God doesn't sleep. And God is pulling an all-nighter for you every night, looking after you and caring for you while you're sleeping soundly. John Piper put it this way, God is a tireless worker. The eagerness of God to work for us is amazing. His eyes, his eyes are running to and fro, looking for opportunities to work for us, to work for, sorry, for his people who trust him. With all his heart and all his soul, he works for those who wait for him and trust him. And church, that is your God. And guess what he did last night? He was working for you again while you were sleeping. Now, if you're not a Christian, I, I just need to say this. So let's just press pause. If you're seeking 
Christianity, maybe you're pursuing truth, you're exploring Christianity, we're really glad you're here. Welcome. Thankful you're here. But let me say something to you to be faithful and loving to you in this way. The thought of God never sleeping is not comforting thought to you. That's actually a very alarming thought. Okay, because that means he sees everything that you do. I mean, we think that we can hide our sin from God. We think that the darkness may hide it. You know, like if you just come out at night when no one else is looking, no one else is seeing, but God doesn't sleep, friends. God does not sleep. He does not slumber. He sees everything you say, everything you do, everything you think. And for some of us, that's a very, very uncomfortable reality. You know, some some have slept in beds they should not have slept in. Some have watched things they should not have watched. Some have sent text messages they should not have sent. And God was not sleeping when that happened. He saw that God was not sleeping when we yelled at our wife and berated our kids. God was not sleeping when when those things happened. And, and here's a great thing. God was not sleeping when he prompted you to come to church this morning. Which is love. Because he's bringing conviction to you. And that's actually a sign of God's mercy. So this is a great time to just confess your sin. It's true that God has seen everything that you've ever done. And of course you're guilty. But here's the great thing. If you run to, the, to Jesus and you confess your sin, then the God who never sleeps becomes the God who always forgives. And that is the precious reality of the gospel. So God's care is constant. Second, God's care is close. Verses 5 and 6. Look at this. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The language here is intimate. God keeps us. He's close to us. You can hear the echo of number 6. You know, the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. He's looking at you. His care is close. Now, of course, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so sometimes when God's word says to us, I'll keep you, our flesh says, yeah, but 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 well, what about this situation or or what about that situation? And we're prone to unbelief. But God is reminding us this morning that even though we can't see the outcome, God can. And God is not stopped working and caring for you. And so in verse 5, he uses shade as a metaphor to depict God's care. And that makes a lot of sense because in the Middle East, the sun is scorching hot. It's dangerous. The sun can be blinding. The heat can be blistering. So this is a powerful metaphor of God's protection of his shade. And notice that it says the Lord is the shade on your right hand, which is significant because in battle, what hand did you put the shield in? The hand that you put the shield in was the left hand. So to say that God is your shade on your right hand is that even in battle, you are protected on both sides. God is always protecting you. He's protecting your unprotected side is the idea in this psalm. So we see that God's watch care is constant. His watch care is close. And finally, here's the last piece. God's care is comprehensive. Okay, complete. Whatever word you want to use. It's thorough. Okay, there is no moment, verses 7 and 8, when God fails to keep his promise to you. Think about the impact of these verses. They conclude with a psalm. These verses conclude the psalm with a, with a total promise of complete protection in every way, at all times, in all places, forever. Amazing. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So like that's comprehensive care. It includes everything. 
So in conclusion, friend, where where does your help come from? I hope that your answer this morning is his answer. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's the God who cares for you. Run to him. That's how we get hope this morning. It requires a lifted head. It requires a God who can really help us. And this God, his care for us is constant. His care for us is close. His care for us is comprehensive. Now, I want to invite our worship team to come up and, and conclude us in, in, a, in a song. But my only remaining question this morning is this, is why? So did, did that thought cross your mind? Why does God love you so? Why can God love us this way? Why is God so radically for us? And you know what the answer is? God is so radically for you because he was so radically against his son on the cross. That's why. Because unlike us, Jesus did not experience the shield or shade of God's protection on the cross. God's full wrath and anger and fury fell upon Jesus. He was utterly abandoned by the Father he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No shade, no shield, no protection, pure anger, wrath against him poured out on his son. Unlike Jesus, unlike us, excuse me, Jesus was not kept from all harm. In fact, God harmed him. Isaiah says so. God crushed him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And that word strike, stricken, is the same word in this text, Psalm 121. The sun will not strike you. Same word. You know why it doesn't strike you? Because it struck Jesus. He was stricken for us. We experienced protection because Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his stripes, we're healed. We're healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that, friends, is why God is for you in life, in all circumstances, and for the rest of your days, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow and forever. That's his promise to you, and he sealed it with the blood of his son. And so, church, I just want you to hope in God this morning, okay? Because here's the thing, like the worst thing you can do right now is to act like you don't have any hope. When God crushed his son to give you hope. Like think about the slap that is in God's face. Right? He struck his son so you can be protected and have hope this morning. So, yeah, do you have bad news in front of you? Maybe. Is there really, really a rough situation you're dealing with? Yeah, I'm sure there is. But you know what? Ultimately... You have everything. You do. God is your hope. So let's lift our heads this morning. Okay? Let's lift our countenance this morning. Let's lift our eyes to the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, we, we do that by faith. And we need your help to do that. It's hard. It's hard because we're wrought with sin and we're just fleshly people. And so if it requires supernatural work in us right now, Lord, do that work in us. And uh, we rebuke Satan in all of his ways who tries to get in and ruin that. 
And we pray for, again, for your felt presence to come and to lift our eyes to the maker. We do that right now by faith. In your name we pray.